0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb J., Amara, Caleb F., Emmeline, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J. Caleb asks, how did Pharaoh's magicians mimic some of the plagues of Moses? Caleb, this is a great question, and it's one that I've wondered about quite a bit. I remember hearing these stories from Exodus chapter 7 and 8 when I was your age, and ever since then, I've been kind of fascinated and puzzled by what happens here. So just to remember, in Exodus 7, God sends Moses and his brother Aaron to represent him in the presence of Pharaoh. Now, in advance, God warns Moses that although he's going to perform signs and wonders, Pharaoh isn't going to listen. And that this not listening, this hardness of heart, is actually part of God's plan. So he tells Moses that, first of all, Pharaoh is going to ask for a miracle. He's going to want you to perform some kind of a sign to prove your authority. Now, that's when Aaron is told to throw down his staff, and it becomes a serpent. Now, surprisingly, the magicians of Egypt, they're able to copy this sign. They throw down their staffs, and their staffs become serpents as well. But then Aaron's serpent staff gobbles them up. Now, according to Exodus 7, verse 11 The magicians were able to do this by their secret arts. That's the term that's used, secret arts. Now, some scholars think that this refers to some kind of Mm -hmm. evil supernatural power that the magicians have, some kind of demonic force. Others think that it's some kind of trickery that the magicians have perfected in order to convince people of their power. It turns out in Egyptian history, there are a lot of stories of Egyptian priests and religious figures performing signs like this, doing these amazing miracles in order to establish their authority. So that's already what the people of Egypt expect these magicians to be able to do. So the point of the Bible's account isn't that Moses has authority just because he can do signs, but rather it's because his signs are more powerful because his serpent staff consumes the serpent staffs of the magicians. It shows that the true God is more powerful than the false, that the true God's servants beat the priests of the false god. Now, there's two more times that this happens. Uh, The magicians manage to copy the sign that Moses gives later on when he turns water into blood in verse 21 of chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, in verse 7, they're able to make frogs come up from the water in the same way that, that Moses does. But here's the interesting thing it seems that the the magicians can copy the plague, or at least they can do something that appears to copy the plague, but they don't have the power to cure the plague or to reverse the sign. Even though these magicians can supposedly turn water into blood or bring a plague of frogs, Pharaoh has to beg Moses to make these plagues go away, So the magicians are able to create a sign, but they're not able to reverse what God is doing. So clearly, whether the magicians are somehow using some demonic power or just tricking people into thinking that they are, uh, they have no real power to stop Moses. And it seems like eventually they just give up because after... This uh, frog plague, we don't hear of those magicians still in the competition. After they have failed to reverse what Moses is doing, they seem to vanish from the picture because no one can deny the power of the God of Israel, and eventually Pharaoh has to let the Israelites go. Our second question comes from Amara, and she asks, How do I tell people about Jesus if I don't know anyone who isn't a Christian? It's a great question, and here are two quick thoughts. First, you can talk about Jesus with anyone, even if they're already a Christian. In fact, you really should. We want to encourage one another in our faith, and a great way to do that is to talk about Jesus. And by the way, just because a person considers themselves to be a Christian doesn't mean that they fully understand who Jesus is and what the good news of the gospel really means. In our city, for example, we're surrounded by people who call themselves Christian. They have grown up in church, maybe they attend church Regularly now, maybe not, but they think of themselves as good Christian people, and yet they're still trusting in their own goodness for salvation. So talking about Jesus with them, even though they consider themselves to be Christians, might actually help them to trust in Jesus for the first time. And even people who do believe often don't understand as well as they could, right? I mean, certainly you could say the same thing for us. And that's another reason to talk about Jesus with other people, even if they believe that they are Christians, to help them deepen their faith. If you think about it, every sermon that I preach is basically me telling people about Jesus, even though they're already Christians. But when they hear, the hope is by the power of the Spirit that their faith is deepened. So here's a second idea. If you don't know anyone who isn't a Christian, why not look for opportunities to meet new people? I realize that some of us have more opportunities than others, and at your age, it might be more difficult because a lot of your activities and schooling are structured in such a way that you don't just go out and, and get to meet strangers at a whim. But, you know, I've joined clubs and I've attended events specifically with the idea of connecting with new people, different people, and that's something that you might also be able to do as well. Even if it doesn't come easily, you could always look out for the opportunity to make new relationships with people that you can talk to Jesus about. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this episode from Caleb F. Let's give Caleb a round of applause. Caleb asks, why did Jesus answer the devil with scripture when the devil tempted him? That's true. One of the striking facts about Jesus's temptation in the wilderness is that no matter how Satan tempts him, he answers by quoting scripture. And he doesn't quote just any bible verse either. Jesus quotes from Moses's words to the people of Israel at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy as they are preparing to enter the promised land. Now if you consider those two facts, first that Jesus is quoting scripture and secondly that the scripture he's quoting is a specific set of instructions about living in the promised land then you can really appreciate more deeply what's happening in the temptation. Think about it this way. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of sin. And when Jesus is born, we see that his kingship is a threat to other kings. For example, King Herod tries to kill him because he's afraid that Jesus will take away his crown. But the real threat is to King Satan. Satan wants to keep ruling over his kingdom. He wants to keep humanity in the grip of sin's power. So he tries to get Jesus to turn stones into bread, putting his physical needs out of his spiritual duty. He tries to get him to prove his kingship by throwing himself to his death and seeing if the angels will intervene. And both of these things seem to be attempts on Satan's part to somehow disqualify Jesus. Then he goes to Jesus and he says, Hey, this is my land. You can rule it for me. Just follow my rules. Just worship me. Now, each time Jesus answers with those words from Moses, because those are God's instructions for how to live in the land. So Satan says, This is my territory. These are my rules. And Jesus says, no, this is God's land, and these are his rules, and Satan is defeated. Now, one lesson we can take away from this, and it's a good one, is that when we are tempted, we should comfort ourselves with God's word. When you're tempted to sin to do what's wrong, You need to remind yourself what the Bible teaches. You need to think about your situation from the scriptural standpoint, from God's point of view. And the better you know the Bible and what it teaches, the easier this is. Now, Jesus clearly knows the scripture. And he's setting an example for us of how we should study God's word so that we know the scripture too, so that we understand the, the rules of the land. That God has made. Now, that's a good general lesson to take away from the temptation, but there's also a more particular lesson that we can learn from this as well, and that has to do with the power of God. You might put it this way, the big question in the wilderness is, whose world is it anyway? Does the land belong to Satan, or does it belong to God, Now, when you're tempted, that's a good question to ask yourself, because a lot of times we act as if we have no choice, we have no power, that we have to do bad things, that in a fallen world, there's just no alternative. But that's living as if Satan really is in control, as if he really is our king. And Jesus's words remind us that God made the world, and that the world is what God says it is, and that it works the way he says it does. His word gives us the power to follow him. So Jesus answers every temptation with scripture because scripture reminds us who our Lord truly is and where the power truly lies. Our help in every temptation comes from God. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Emelyn asks, exactly how many Bibles do you own? Well, Emmeline, the fact of the matter is, I don't actually know, but the number is high enough that I can't really keep track of it. Suffice to say, I have a lot of Bibles. Now, partly that's because I'm a pastor, and a pastor needs a lot of Bibles for reference, for research. But it's also because I've written a lot over the years about the design and the printing of Bibles, so I have accumulated a lot of different examples of how that's been done in order to study. Of course, you don't need a lot of Bibles. What you need is to spend a lot of time in the Bible that you have. And finally, Benton asks, if you could fight or spectate in any war, which war would it be? Benton, as much as I love the study of history, including military history, I'm happy that I have not had to fight in any wars, and I don't have any daydreams about changing that. If I could spectate, though, traveling back in time to take a look at what really happened, that would be interesting for sure. And the more I think about it, the more times I think I'm going to change my mind about what war I would like to see. But I'll give you two contenders. Okay, first of all, I'd have to say the Trojan War, mainly just to confirm that it really happened. You know, A lot of people used to believe that the Trojan War was just a myth that Homer made up. But then archaeologists found what we think was Troy, and now it's a hot topic of speculation, what really happened, what didn't. It'd be interesting to find out for sure. The other would have to be the war to conquer the Promised Land in the days of Joshua, especially the battle against the five kings that's recorded in Joshua chapter 10. That's the one where the sun stands still in the sky at Gibeon until those kings are defeated. The Bible says there has been no day like it before or since, and I think that would be quite a unique battle to witness. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find answers, we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.